0: I will make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I will make you a blessing to the entirety of the earth. And so one of the questions that we've asked over the last couple of months, as we've been studying Joseph's life, and we come near the conclusion of that story here in Genesis chapter 47, is, how has Joseph and all that has transpired in his life, been a blessing? in fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. How has God blessed Joseph, and how has God used Joseph and his circumstances to bless those around him? So this morning we're going to ask two questions, because these are the two questions that are answered in Genesis 47. Who was blessed by the ministry of Joseph? Who was blessed by his honesty, by his character, by his hard work, by his magnanimous nature, by his forgiveness, by his incredible character? And then the second question, that's a question that we've hit on before, but the second question we haven't talked about nearly as much, which is, how did he do it? How did Joseph bless those people around him? And are there some principles that we can derive from observing Joseph's life and Joseph's methodology that we can apply in 2020 to think about how we might, as the faithful people of God living in a pagan world, be a blessing to those people around us. So let's go ahead and start by taking a look in Genesis 47. I'm going to tell you up front there are three different groups of people who are blessed here in Genesis 47. The first is Jacob and his family. Jacob and his family. The second is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is blessed. And the third is the known world. The known world is blessed. These are the three people who are blessed, or the three groups of people who are blessed here in Genesis 47. We start out with Jacob and his family. You'll remember that uh, Pharaoh himself had offered the opportunity for Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers to move down from Canaan, which was experiencing a deep and terrible famine, a drought the likes of which they hadn't seen in generations to make their way down to Egypt, a land that had prepared under Joseph's wisdom for the seven years of drought that would afflict the known world. And so this is what we find here in Genesis 47, that journey is starting. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh in verse 1, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and they are now in the land of Goshen. This is uh, just a little bit north of where Pharaoh lives. It's an extremely pleasant land. It's not arid. It's flourishing in green life, a great place to raise livestock. They are now in the land of Goshen, and from among his brothers he took five, somewhat randomly here, and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And, And now please, they say reverentially, thoughtfully, respectfully, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. He understands that they're not just running away from the famine, they have been marching toward their long lost brother." They haven't just been walking away from something, they have been walking toward him. And while they do want to change their location, they don't really want to change their jobs. Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the very best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh ups the ante here. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. If you Jews are so good at what it is that you say that you're going to do, well, go ahead and take care of my royal works, right? My herds, my flocks, my livestock. You can take care of all of them. He's enveloped them into the nation. Pharaoh's acceptance of Israel's family extends an offer of royal work. If these men are, in fact, capable, then they'll be put in charge of his work there. Jacob and his family are obviously blessed The entire known world is experiencing a famine the likes of which none of them have ever seen. But they've been brought from a place of insecurity to security, from not knowing where they're going to get their food and drink to a land where they'll be able to sustain themselves. They have been extraordinarily blessed, and they've been blessed because of the mercy of God. Well, verse 7, here we see Pharaoh himself getting blessed. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before the pharaoh. Uh, For the last couple of months, we've been looking at this slide over my shoulder. Uh, This is a painting from a French painter in the middle of the 19th century named Tussaud. This is uh, a picture of Joseph. You'll see him standing there in the central frame with the band around his hair. And there is his father with the golden sash around his head, and he is about to bless pharaoh, Right? And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob is an old man. And the Egyptians are obsessed with life and death. You'll remember that all of the great monuments that still stand in the Egyptian pantheon are pyramids. And pyramids are what? Tombs. They're tombs. And then how did they prepare all of their pharaohs and their great dignitaries for the afterlife? Well, they turned them into mummies, uh, doing an extraordinary work of embalming that has preserved many of their faces some thousands of years later that we're still discovering today. Uh, The girls were driving around town the other day, and there was like a Brinks security truck there parked in front of the store, and Grace turned to Laura and said, hey, why is that truck so big? And Laura said, oh, because there's money in there. And she goes, there's mummies in there? That's why we need a truck that big, keep those mummies inside, right? No, there's money in there. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. (laughs) They were obsessed with death, and even though all of the pharaohs claimed to be godlike, claimed in fact to be immortal, they had these massive monuments to the To the Egyptian ideal, which was, in the Egyptian culture, 110 years was considered a perfect length of a full life, 110 years. Now, uh, see what he says here, Jacob, in response. He looks at Jacob. Apparently, Jacob looks pretty old, right? How many are the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my years of my sojourning are 130 and at this point, I'm sure Pharaoh's going, whoa, 20 years past the actually, ex- He's really done something great. And then Jacob says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the land of their sojourning. It's a little dour, isn't it? You've lived 130 years, and he says, few are the days of my life. I think about this little baby who's joining our family in the next few months, and I think... Oh, I'm going to be a dad of a newborn at 38. That feels old, right? I feel old. Man, that's going to be hard. He's 130. And he says, few are the days. Really? 38 has seemed like a lot so far. (laughs) But Abraham lived to 175. And Isaac lived to 180. And what Jacob is telling here, really honestly and really transparently to Pharaoh and for history there have been good days and there's also been a lot of hard days Uh, a lot of days of scheming and frustration a lot of days of fighting and plotting trying to find something that only God could give me a lot of days of thinking I had finally turned the corner only to lose my favorite son Joseph and to think for the better part of 20 years that he was dead they've been hard years And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Twice it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not indirectly, but literally, viscerally, in person. To think about that juxtaposition, here's the one who is dependent on Pharaoh's kindness and magnanimous nature in order to let his tribe survive. But who's the one doing the blessing quite literally here? It's Jacob the one who represents the only true God, the God of Israel who has the power to bless. Verse 11, And then Joseph settled with his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt, the best in the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. It's interesting, just tuck away somewhere in your mind here how things will change in 430 years. This is the beginning of the introduction of the people of Israel into the land of Egypt. They'll be enslaved for the better part of four centuries. At the beginning of this trial, Jacob, the great patriarch, makes his way as a supplicant into the house of Pharaoh and blesses him. 430 years later God's man Moses will march into the chamber of Pharaohs and demand with the full authority of God to let his people go. My, my, how times change for the people of God in the land of Egypt. But right now it's all good. And so not only is Jacob and his family blessed Pharaoh himself is blessed. A nation which could have been ravaged by the drought, by the ingenuity of his servant Joseph, is doing very well. So well, in fact, that they can afford to be kind to those aliens and those sojourners from the nations around them. Well, the third group to be blessed is the known world. Take a look at verse 15 now. There was no food in all the land. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. You'll remember that for seven years of plenty, Joseph had put away 20% of all the grain that had grown over those seven years. So now for the seven years of famine, they have this massive reserve of food to feed the world but the people still have to come in and pay for it. Well, you can see what's happening here. Verse 15, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For all our money is gone. Now, if you're not careful, Joseph is starting to look like a real schemer. He looks terribly shrewd, doesn't he? the rich getting richer while the poor are getting poorer he's providentially shrewd and we'll see why verse 16 and joseph answered well if you don't have any money then give your livestock and i'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if all your money is gone and so they brought their livestock to joseph and joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and they said to him, we will not hide from our Lord that all our money is spent. The herds of livestock all belong to my Lord. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. That's all we have left. What do we offer now? Why should we die, verse 19, before your eyes, both we and our land? By us buy our land for food, and and with our land we'll be servants to Pharaoh, and and, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and, and that in the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land, and he paid for it in grain there. He bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made them servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from pharaoh and lived on the allowance that pharaoh gave them therefore they did not sell their land right again it, it seems to be a story of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer you would get the idea that arlo guthrie would write some pretty angry songs about joseph right Uh, This is a guy that Bernie Sanders, our comrade to the north, may not like very much. This is a, a real schemer for the capital gains of Pharaoh. But it goes on. Is he a bad guy? Verse 23. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall go and sow the land. And at the harvest you'll give a fifth to Pharaoh... And four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household, and and, and as food for your little ones. And they said, are they incredulous here? What a high markup. How dare you? No. You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt as it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth And the land of the priests alone did not become pharaohs. Joseph's actual plan is not only genius, right? How he's provided here over a decade and a half long struggle to feed the known world. He and his family were not only safe, but in their own safety, he's protective and he's compassionate, right? He knew he bore a greater responsibility. It's one that's been engineered by God throughout this entire story that God in his providential, all of his working, all of his behind-the-scenes machinations has placed Joseph and equipped him in this position for this very moment. God is blessing the world through Joseph. And we understand it's a deeply theological summons, the feeding of the world. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that are happening here. We understand just how compassionate Joseph is when we learn just a little bit about the ancient Near Eastern world. Because famines were not unique to this particular instance here at the end of Genesis. Famines happened regularly. And if you go back and you look at how the ancient Near Eastern world reckoned with all of these famines, we find the same thing happening over and over again. That there were records of the way that the monarchs were supposed to treat the people that the interest rate for borrowing anything that belonged to the Pharaoh was a minimum of one-third, and that Pharaohs by their royal right could charge two-thirds. What's Joseph's number? 20%. It's enough to keep the system going so that he can continue in wisdom to provide and to care for and compassion for all of the people of the world. He's done an extraordinary thing. We find the Babylonians, for example, in the midst of a great flood some hundreds of years earlier here, charge 90% interest on everything that happens in order to ensure that people are kept in abject poverty for generations. Not so with Joseph. He charges just enough to take care of what needs to happen on Pharaoh's end to provide for the people of the world but it is interesting. From that day on, it says, from that day on, all of the land of Egypt belonged to Pharaoh. Now, Moses is writing this. We know that Moses is the author of Genesis. This is being written maybe 450 years later, this particular account. So for four and a half centuries, all of this land has continued to belong to Pharaoh. But you know what happens to the Jews, when they get back to the land of Israel, to the land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the land that Jacob had left originally in the famine, every single family in the nation is given their own plot of land. And if we go back and we study the Mosaic Law, something fascinating happens. Not even the king has the right to withdraw the land from the ownership of the people. Every generation will find that their historical family rights are secure on their land forever. It's their land. The compassion of God being not only displayed in the way that Joseph takes care of the Egyptians in the known world, but the compassion of God displayed and the generosity of God displayed in the institution and inauguration of the nation four and a half centuries later as he sets up a deal that not even the Egyptians could get in their land. No one is blessed like the Israelites are blessed under the leadership of their God and King, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, verse 27. And so Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And we know that they multiplied over the next few hundred years because at the time of the Exodus, there are something like 600,000 men of Israel who are listed there among the tribes of the Son of Israel. And so Jacob calls into his son Joseph and he says to him, if now I have found favor in your sight. It's an interesting way to put that. Almost always that phraseology is used of a subordinate to a superior. You're not going to find anywhere else in the Bible where a father says that to a son. But it's unique circumstances. Jacob is dependent on Joseph. Joseph is clearly the one who's providing for the family, has taken on this role as really the new patriarch. If I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. He wants it official. And he swore to him. And then Israel uh, some of your Bibles say he bowed himself upon the head of his bed, others will say he, he leaned upon the top of his staff the point being that he is too old to bow all the way to the floor and so with what little strength he has left there he, he bows just ever so gently and, and there it is in deference to the authority of Joseph and in fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Genesis 37 that one day the entirety of the family would bow before Joseph It's a sweet scene. He was 130 when he moved to Egypt. He spent 17 years there. It's no coincidence, I think, that Joseph spent 17 years under the care and tutelage of his father. And at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob will spend 17 years under the care and benefaction of his son Joseph. And then he says, son, I want you to be the one that closes my eyes. Not Reuben, the oldest, not Judah, the, the new emerging leader, but Joseph, his favorite. A- and use your clout, use your resources, and use your heart and take me back to the land of our fathers. We are strangers in a strange land that God has used to the great benefit of all my sons and daughters. But I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried at home. The same home that the sons of Israel have today. So many are blessed. So many are blessed. I wonder if we could have gone back to the very beginning of Joseph's calamities and asked him, can you conceive of a future in which so many will be blessed enormously by the tragedies that you are about to endure? If he could have seen, if he could have even imagined the wonderful, incredible blessings that would have Extruded from the pains and the calamities of his own life. But we have to ask a question beyond this. And this is a question that we haven't asked so far. We've asked the question, who was blessed? We haven't asked exactly or explicitly how he did it. Let me give you four things here, and I know we're nearing the end of our time, but let me just lay these out pretty clearly for you. I think these are important observations throughout the life of Joseph about how he did all of the blessing first, Instead of retreating within the walls of his family compound in Goshen, he engaged the secular Egyptian community with an obvious counterculture. He was engaging them. He was alive in the life of the daily Egyptian, engaging them. Now, that seems like a really obvious thing, but you've got to understand that philosophically, the church has historically approached this in very, very different ways. You've had some, like in liberal Christianity, who have advocated total immersion into the culture. They've been sustained by the world's food, they've been enraptured by the world's media, they've been informed by the world's philosophy, and beholden to the world's ever-shifting ethics. And they are virtually indistinguishable from the world around them. We have been called out as a distinct people. And if we believe what the world believes and if we says what the world says and if we advocate what the world advocates and if we vote how the world votes and if we march how the world marches, we are of no use to the kingdom of God as being a distinct and holy people who are entirely dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done at the cross. So like many of our mainline liberal denominational brothers and sisters who have embraced liberal Christianity, we see that they look exactly like the rest of the world. The only difference is that occasionally they have a slightly different agenda on Sunday mornings. They're, they will defer brunch on occasion to go to church. Right? Otherwise, they look exactly the same. You could take the exact opposite approach, and we've seen that play out. We've seen that play out especially over the last 150 years with the most uh, fundamental strains of Christianity, which advocated essentially a total withdrawal from the world, right? Not a counterculture set against the mores of the day, but a subculture that has intrinsically retreated from engagement of virtually all meaningful factor. Instead of setting up a counterculture within the schools and colleges and camps and universities and Instead we had to have our own camps. We had to have our own colleges. We had to have our own schools. We had to have our own universities. We had to have our own bookstores. We had to have our own music stores. We had to have our own concerts. We had to have our own t-shirts. We had to have our own breath mints, right? This is a movement that is not only dying, it's culturally inconsequential. It's been less about regrouping and more about retreating. Another proposal you'll find in recent years comes from a guy, uh, Rod Dreher. I don't know if you've heard of this. The Benedict Option, maybe one of the most influential books written regarding Christendom in the last 25 years. Rod Dreher makes the argument in that book as a conservative believer that the only responsible thing for the church to do in light of the way that the church has become uh, culturally less and less influential and will be increasingly... um, Dictated against by crass pagan morals is that we need to uh, regroup and regrather. We need to withdraw for a generation. We need to uh, educate ourselves. We need to get ourselves ready. And that after however many years, then we go back into the culture and we re engage in thoughtful and creative ways. He calls this a strategic withdrawal. A couple of problems, I think, there. Not only have I never seen a strategic withdrawal not eventually turn itself into the kind of retreat that is epitomized by fundamentalism over the last, say, 120 years, right? But also, I think it fundamentally misunderstands what it is that we're doing right now. This is our strategic withdrawal. Once a week, once a week, for this day, this is the Lord's day, we withdraw distinctly from the world. We are refreshed in fellowship and in prayer. We are re-equipped by the word of God and what is taught here as truth from scripture, right? If you go back and you look at any of the great battles and movements of history, if Napoleon marching into Russia, what thwarts all of those major militaristic movements? It's not that their technology was worse or they had worse soldiers. It's that all the supply lines broke down, right? We couldn't get them food. We couldn't get them munitions. We couldn't get them the resources and the energy and the supplies that they needed to continue to fight in the battle. This is why Christians have worship on Sunday mornings in part as a strategic withdrawal by which they are re-equipped to go out and continue to do what it is that we have been called to do. What we're not talking about is a strategic withdrawal, what we're really talking about is a strategic engagement, a counterculture, salt and light. And if you go back and you observe from Old Testament history, who embodies that kind of strategic engagement? Nobody does it better than Joseph. Joseph who remains holy, Joseph who remains focused, is also deeply, deeply engaged in the Egyptian culture as salt and light. He lays out a pattern that I think we still wrestle with today. Secondly, he maintained the opportunity to engage through impeccable character. He fought for that opportunity to engage by living a holy life. Now, think about this for a moment. I think I heard this from Billy Graham or somebody years and years ago that the two quickest ways for any single person to absolutely kill his ministry opportunities, right, develop inappropriate relationships with people of the opposite sex, mishandle money. These are the two silver bullets that will end a ministry instantaneously. Overnight! Now look, both of these are faced in Joseph's life. You remember that there was a time when he served in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife came on to him. If he had jumped into bed with Potiphar's wife, he may likely have never had any of the opportunities that were afforded to him later in life. Right? Right? His platform may have been annulled by God and certainly he would have been derided by the Egyptians. But also think about the money. The entire land is investing all of their wealth, every last penny, all the livestock, everything they have to come and buy grain. And two or three times in these last few chapters we find the exact same phrase used. And Joseph took all of the money and put it in Pharaoh's house. He didn't bring it to his house. He didn't keep it for himself. He handed it all over to the authority to whom it was rightly due in the land. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have seen this story that came in the last few weeks about Ravi Zacharias, whose sermons I have listened to dozens, if not hundreds of times, whose work in apologetics have been incredibly informative for me, whose books I devoured. And yet there are real substantive accusations that have been made that he's done horrible things. Vomitous things, salacious things. I had a professor my senior year of college named Greg Kowser, And uh, Dr. Kowser taught us a lot of stuff. I, I had him for a number of New Testament courses and he was... One of these guys who was just brighter than bright, one of the smartest people I've ever known. But it was the practical wisdom that he gave us at the very end that really stuck with me the most. And he said on our way out the door, as we were getting ready to line up for graduation, he said, Men, I want you to know this as you march into ministry, that you are only one mistake away from ending your opportunity to serve the Lord in that way. You're only one mistake away from losing it forever. You understand that? You will lean on the holiness of God by the Spirit of God. As you engage the word of God to continue to move forward in character. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He engaged the culture and he earned the right to do that by pursuing impeccable character. Thirdly, he worked hard and he did good work. He worked hard and he did good work. Uh, Years ago, a friend of ours was getting into plumbing. And he didn't know a lot about being a plumber, but he had decided this is what he was going to do. He had heard that you could make pretty good money at that. And he decided the very first thing he needed to do before he got into the plumbing industry was to make business cards. And so he had something like 2,000 business cards made. And it had his name and it had the title of his company. Before he knew how to connect this to that or what tool did anything, right, he had really fancy business cards. And he had a little Jesus fish put on the front because he wanted everybody to know that he was a Christian plumber. And an older friend of ours pulled him aside and said, hey, buddy, let me just encourage you to this. Before you tell anybody that you're a Christian plumber, maybe you should ensure that you're a good plumber, (laughs) right? Maybe you should be good at your job before you start saying that the quality of your work is reflective of the God that you serve. Joseph does good work. He's an incredibly wise leader. He's capable and he's hardworking. Some of the hardest working people I've ever known were in ministry. And some of the laziest people I have ever known were in ministry, right? We talk about this all the time that if you're gonna do really egregious things, just make sure that you don't tell them you go to Rocky Mount Bible Church. If you're a terrible driver and you just float the bird to everyone across town, I've got a First Baptist sticker that you can have and we'll put it back on the Toyota, right? As you drive out of the parking lot. Be good at what you do. Work hard at what you do. Strive for excellence in Christ. And then finally here, the fourth thing, he gave all the credit to God, right? Uh, I love in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compels his servants, let everyone see your good works so that they may glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Joseph has dreams. Who gives him the dreams? God does. Joseph gets interpretations. Who gives him those? God does. Joseph is absolutely worked over by one false accusation after another. Who sustains him in all of his ministry? God does. And when the time comes to see the fruition of all the blessings in the land, who does Joseph give the credit to? To God. He keeps absolutely none of it for himself. Just as he gives all of Pharaoh's money to Pharaoh, he gives all of God's glory to God. He renders to Pharaoh what is Pharaoh's. He renders to Yahweh what is Yahweh's. If we will do this, if we will engage the culture around us, both in character and in quality, resolved to allow every accolade to pass right over our shoulders and be accrued to the account of God, we can do incredible things in the culture in which we have been placed. We can do world-changing things and God may be glorified as the world is blessed. Father, I pray this morning that you would allow us to have an impact, that you would allow us to engage the culture in healthy ways, that we would fulfill the great promise that was made to our progenitor, Abraham, that we might be a blessing to those who have blessed us, that we might be used to bless the world for the fame of your glory.